Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And if you have a Bible, we are turning once again to Second Peter, where we are in a study of this letter and uh, moving on now to verse 10, considering some of the blessed fruits of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This time, the blessed fruit of assurance, which will take us a little more time than we're able to spend today. So we'll be back next week at the same point and uh, getting more into the practicalities of it. This more of an introduction now to the subject and uh, situating it here in this letter. I'd like to read to you again the first 10 verses of this letter for the sake of not only context, but bringing together all that he's said so far to us to press home to us now the matter of assurance. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are your forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins, therefore, brethren, since we pray again, especially for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to apply such great and precious promises, both through grace and the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might freely know the things that are given to us by God. We pray that we would possess our possessions, that some would be delivered from a, an, an anxious and even fruitless anxiety of their own assurance, that others would know the joy of being well-grounded in a right frame, we pray that you would give us an understanding of these things that are so important for our Christian fruitfulness and faith, that you would have more glory in our lives through Christ our Lord. Amen. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, said the old hymn. Oh, what a foretaste of glory, divine. Assurance is a blessed thing indeed, and a foretaste of glory, a great power in the Christian life. Everything with it becomes more powerful, more vivid, more immediate. The love of God, the greatness of sin, the wonder of forgiveness, the beauty of our new life, and our ache and anticipation for heaven. This is why uh, Thomas Brooks called his classic book on the assurance of salvation, Heaven on Earth. 
what peace, what joy, what strength and security there is when we can say, the mighty God is my God and my hope and my deliverer, and I love him because he first loved me. What confidence when we can say with a clear conscience that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, the blessedness of assurance is not simply for the sake of a Christian's peace of mind. As Peter puts it here, it comes with a productive and fruitful Christian life and a larger concern that he has to make us stable, impregnable to temptation, bring down upon us fresh measures of power lest we be led astray by the error of the wicked. You know, the Great Awakening evangelists, they used to make it a regular practice to ask believers whether they had an assurance of their salvation because they knew it was essential to a fruitful and effective Christian life. Do you have this blessed assurance? Is Jesus yours? Do you have a foretaste of glory divine? This used to be a much more pressing issue than it is nowadays. And I'm afraid that the reason anymore isn't because Christians have taken Peter's instruction to heart. No, it's because all the warnings the Bible gives about false assurance are more and more falling on deaf ears because they don't strike us in the same way as they struck previous generations with alarm. The culture in which we live is having its insidious effect upon us. Always does, I suppose, but dying and self-congratulating cultures like ours have a particularly bad effect in this respect, making us not assured, but careless The fear of the Lord, the reality of judgment, the earnestness of the Lord's warnings, all this is just increasingly ignored and disregarded. And our culture is having a very similar effect on preachers and preaching. The number of sermons preached even to serious congregations regarding the danger of false assurance is vanishingly small in our own day. Such is the power of the world to blind us to the truth, as Peter puts it. Well, probably in reaction to this drift of the world, we do find sometimes the opposite problem as well. A bunch of false teachings about Christian assurance, or that we can't have assurance, or Well, instead of easy believism, something that we might call hard believism. People looking at themselves at the very point they should be looking to Christ to try to find assurance. Christ's promises are to them not as encouraging as their thoughts are discouraging. And so sometimes the most conscientious and sensitive Christians, who are in fact growing from faith to love, are nevertheless still living without the assurance that they need questioning, unsettled, confused. Uh, We must reject easy believism and hard believism and, and wrong believism for that matter. We must recognize 
that there is a reality called the new birth and readily acknowledge that it is rooted in God's electing grace and Christ's precious blood. And we shouldn't seek assurance in our feelings and especially some emotional response to a hyped-up, watered-down evangelistic message sometime in the past. We must begin where the Bible begins. And so I begin with you today a study that I hope will benefit every one of you and perhaps even deliver some of you from the miserable bondage that is found in a lack of Christian assurance. And so I'd like us to give all diligence, as Peter twice urges, to consider this matter now of blessed assurance together and how we might enjoy it. Uh, As I've just said, I'm only going to be able to introduce it to you today. I'm going to have to handle many practical matters and difficult questions later. Today, I'm going to sketch out the, the, the large things before us and try to answer four important questions. What is assurance? Why do we need it? Why do we lack it? And how do we get it? And even here, I'm afraid I'm only going to have to be able able to sketch out some answers for you, not fill it all in. But I will point out that the best summary that has ever been done of this truth is found in a short chapter in our own Confession of Faith as its own chapter on assurance. And with great succinctness, and precision, uh, bringing together a great mass of church history and theology. It states the truth and gives you scripture proofs to get you on your way, and it'll be a very profitable study if you would like to begin there to think more deeply. But I would like to come now to these four questions from our passage. What is assurance? The first one, what is assurance? Peter, in verse 10 calls it making your calling and election sure. Making your calling and election sure. And I won't even have time to unpack all those words at length, but I will say that the Christians in Asia, new believers as they were, nevertheless, they understood the basics as I hope that you do, or at least will. In fact, if you have a Bible, you might want to look with me briefly at Peter's first letter, at a couple examples of what he has already taught them on this matter. Um, I'm skipping some things in chapter 1, but I will go to chapter 2 in verse 8, where he starts uh, uh, bringing some things together for us here. First Peter 2, verse 8, he's... Uh, writing now about those who have uh, rejected the gospel, those who are disobedient and who have uh, rejected that uh, the Messiah stumbling over the stumbling stone of Psalm 118. Well, anyway, picking up in verse 8, uh, to those who, di- to, who are disobedient, uh, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, here we go now. Here's more to the point. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen, or elect, 
generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, that is of God, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Okay, well, uh, that word chosen is the same word as elect. Uh, in in, in uh, context here, Peter explaining the difference between those who stumble over Christ and to those to whom Christ is a precious cornerstone. Well, some, he says, God has appointed them to stumble being disobedient to the word. To others, he has chosen them in Christ to be his own special people. Some are appointed to stumble. Some are chosen to be his own. And those whom he has chosen, he, God, has also called. You say, wait, weren't they all called? And then some said yes and some said no. Um, not in this sense. Uh, there, there is the general gospel call that certainly goes to all. But the Bible speaks about another call that the preacher doesn't do, that God does. A God that calls uh, down to his chosen people a call that goes right to their soul that is made effective by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring them to new life in Christ, just like the call to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man comes forth. Well, this is sometimes called effectual calling, something that God is said to do repeatedly, not a preacher. So we find this uh, a couple times in the letter, but uh, we'll skip over to chapter 5, verse 10. May the God of all grace, chapter 5, verse 10, who called us, to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The God who does all those other things, perfects, establishes, strengthens, and settles us, is the same God who called us to eternal glory. Uh, so God has uh, appointed some to stumble in disobedience. He, is a, he has elected or chosen others to be his own, and these he has called, called in time. We read actually called for a number of purposes, which I skipped over in First Peter. We'll come to that some other time. He is called for his per own purpose, and he has called them to eternal glory by Christ Jesus. God chooses and calls a people to himself. Okay, well, you might say that's nice, but that's in the God's eternal decree, and uh, that's in, in God's invisible counsels. We, we don't read in the Bible anywhere that this applies to us. How can we know that we are part of that group Peter calls elect or chosen? Uh, we believe, but Jesus himself, himself speaks about those who believe for a time. How do we know that we are, in fact, called by God? Now, that's... That's the important matter that's before us. Knowing for certain what God has done in our case. 
This is what Peter is now describing in his second letter, where we are finding ourselves this week and next at least, that how we can, in fact, come or grow to know, or he says to make sure that we are his called and elect people. And you notice that Peter's great concern here is not that we should be sure for the right, right reasons that we are saved, although that no doubt is important. But P Peter's concern in context is that we might grow to live a fruitful, joyful Christian life, all those verses ahead of time, in the active confidence of God's love and forgiveness and the near approach of the glories of heaven, knowing, in fact, that he is ours and we are his, and that assurance is one of these fruits that's going to come from such a, such a life. That's, that's how it fits together. So our, our, our confession of faith, if I can just give you this summary, says, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. That, or this is the reason, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, which are the proper fruits of assurance. This is the larger concern that Peter has, a fruitful, joyful Christian life of Peter 1.10, as the confession always seeks to express the truth as far as possible in biblical language and categories. So maybe you think, um, well, I, I really don't see the big deal about assurance. Everybody has assurance today, right? Uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, well, when he was going to go get his PhD, he, was, he, want, he, he told his advisor, I, I want to do it on assurance. His advisor says, why? Everybody has it today. Absolutely not, he says. Not what Peter is talking about. Not this. Not this mature confidence that is grounded from a fruitful life that has grown out of these precious, this precious faith with exceedingly precious promises and divine power. That's not what people have. Whatever people might have today, it is definitely not biblical assurance. I mean, they might have carelessness. They might have hard-heartedness. They might have presumption that they call assurance. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Peter is talking about. Our, our church's confession again says, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hopes of theirs shall perish. Yet, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him. See, the, taken from this chapter, faith to love and good conscience for life, may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. You believe that? So I don't know about that. Well, that's why we're going to consider the biblical definition and means of assurance. 
That's what we're talking about. Making your calling and election sure, certain. Peter says this in a rather urgent matter, you noticed, ma- manner, in, 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 uh, you notice that uh, you, you need to give all diligence to this, to gain the assurance that is so blessed and fruitful in the way he describes. And to be clear, God doesn't want you to be forever searching and searching and searching for assurance like a hamster forever running on a hamster wheel. That is definitely not the idea that Peter has. Uh, he wants us, he invites us, while, why in fact he commands us that we might know that the Lord is our God and thereby to rejoice in Christ as our Savior and to enjoy communion with such a companion as the Holy Spirit is to us. Assurance, such a central part of the Bible's teaching of the Christian life. We ought to have it. Our task is to apply ourselves as written to the glorious truth that we might possess our possessions. That's an overview of what we're talking about, not what the world is calling assurance, but what the Bible is calling assurance, certainly a wonderful, mighty, fruitful thing. But now we come to the second question, why do we need it? Or why do we need more of it if we have it? Charles Spurgeon has, um, I was about to say, a wonderful sermon on assurance. I think he actually has uh, several. But he has one particular sermon on assurance from the text Psalm 35.3, where uh, David, writing... Uh, to the Lord, says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. It's a a prayer. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Spurgeon begins his sermon. The psalmist, when he wrote these words, was surrounded by many furious enemies. He pleads with God to take hold on shield and buckler and to come forth for his defense. Yet he feels that there is only one thing which God needs to do in order to remove his fears and make him strong in the day of conflict. Say to my soul, I am your salvation, and then I will defy them all. And in the name of God, I will set up my banner, and though weaken myself, yet shall I be able to overcome when the joy of the Lord shall be my strength, because you have said to me, I am your salvation. Brethren, writes Spurgeon, there is nothing that can make you strong to labor for God, bold to fight against your enemies, and mighty to resist your temptations, like a full assurance that God is your God and your salvation. Your doubts and fears weaken you. While they nourish your despair and diminish your joy, they do at the same time cut the sinews of your valor and blunt the edge of your sword. A fully assured Christian is a very giant in Israel. For happiness and beauty, he stands like Saul, head and shoulders, taller than the rest. While for strength and courage, he can match David and is like the angel of the Lord, end quote. Well, for every conceivable reason, we all need more assurance of God's love, 
a deeper conviction and sense that we are the object of his special interest and affection and of Christ's redeeming work in the Holy Spirit's ministry, we need to know more surely that God is for us, that Christ is in heaven preparing a place for us, that there is laid up for us the crown of righteousness, that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you may know all those things and that they are so. Maybe some of you struggle to know such things in your case. But no Christian can ever have too much certainty or present sense of such things. All Christians have much more need of this than they do. I do. And Peter is particularly concerned with growth, a a growing, fruitful Christian life that comes with fruits such as assurance, having increasing measures of the qualities we just studied in verses 5 through 7, adding to our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, and so forth. Um, Growing and increasing, this led Thomas Goodwin to write, quote, a Christian who has full assurance of faith is ten times more active than he who does not. And J.C. Ryle wrote, a believer who lacks an assured hope will spend much of his time in inward searches of heart about his own state. He's so taken up with his inward welfare. He has little time for the work of God. Uh, I think it's really interesting because uh, people object to this doctrine. They say, well, if you knew that you were elect uh, and called of God, well, why would you bother to do anything? And, and, and these people are saying, just, <laughs> it's just exactly the reverse in the Bible. That, that these things come with and through Uh, faithful, fruitful Christian lives and are a tremendous strength to us. And when we don't have them, it it hamstrings us. We halt and limp. You see, to be barren or unfruitful, as we considered last week, his words, Peter's words, verse 9, to be barren and unfruitful is not simply to be less of a Christian than you ought not to be and to lack assurance. It's, it's in fact, to raise a question whether you're a, a Christian at all. Be, because, as Peter writes, but as others press home even more pointedly, to, to be a Christian is to be a, a fruit bearer. I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit, said the Lord Jesus. A, a, to be a Christian is to be a fruit bearer. And not to be like those seeds in the Lord's parable of the sower that produced plants that were quickly scorched by the sun or choked by the weeds of the cares of this life remaining fruitless. Assurance, rather, is one of those things that comes from and with diligent fruitfulness. So Paul could write to the Thessalonians, you know, our gospel, he writes, did not come to you in word only. It's not just that you believed but also, he writes, in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and in much assurance, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you then became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. And he says, I know, brethren, your election of God. He writes that to the Thessalonians. You say, well, how, how could he know that? Well, just look. It came to them with so much assurance that they became so fruitful and bold and effective that from them the word of God sounded forth everywhere. Assurance comes with such things. Fruitfulness, power, the Holy Spirit becoming an example. Um, and Peter is concerned then, back to this letter, Peter is concerned that these Asian Christians have the same. That they mature so that they will not only be fruitful in such ways as we've described, that in particular they will not be liable to the errors of the wicked described in chapter 2. That's really what's behind a lot of this first chapter. He's in the church. There's false teaching, there's immorality, there's wickedness. And he says, yeah, you, you, you need to be solidly grounded on the rock. You need to know whom you believe and why. And it needs to make you faithful and fruitful, lest you fall into the error of the wicked. Being certain that we know means that we're not liable to be led astray by people who don't know. And likewise, in Paul's great statement on assurance in Romans 8, he says that the sense of God's love and of having one's own salvation kept on the soul is a powerful inducement to holiness and prayer and hope in the midst of the troubles of life and elsewhere, Paul gives his own witness to the strength that he gained in his times of trouble by the fact that he knew as a living force his Savior. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Such is the Christian rooted and grounded in Christ, mature, confident, so that nothing but nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Now, he's got a hold of us. But Peter is talking about us getting a better hold of him. And that's what we are doing. That's what we need. And for many, many other reasons, we need assurance. I feel like, again, I'm just scratching the surface on these things. But now we must go to question three. Why do we lack it? Why do we lack it? Once again, a great many reasons. The landscape of church history is simply littered with reasons and with the evidence of great problems in this matter of assurance, of people lacking what they should have and of people thinking that they do have what, in fact, they lack. Mostly, people are looking for assurance in all the wrong places. To paraphrase the country song. Here in the U.S., we're familiar with people who have been encouraged to, to think that if they've ever said a prayer in the name of Jesus, that they are saved and saved forever, no matter how they live, no matter 
that they don't have any meaningful discipleship or following Christ. Uh, it's been called of late magic words. You say those magic words, it happens. No matter what then comes. Well, this, this is near to Peter's concern in this very letter, chapter 2, where there are these believers, Christians, who have, some of them anyway, become teachers. And they certainly say they believe in Christ, but, but Peter points out a number of profound deficiencies that should accompany salvation that are simply not there. He points out an absence of godly affections and rather characterizes these false brethren and their teachers as greedy, deceptive, sensual, unrighteous, following the corrupt desires of the flesh, despising authority, slaves of corruption, bold, arrogant, and blasphemous. It's actually much more rich than that. I'm just giving you the summary. These are not the fruits that one would expect. These are the fruits of... A bramble. I don't know. What am I trying to say here? Uh, you'll know them by their fruits. Such people, listen, such people claim forgiveness without repentance. Eternal life without conviction of sin. A new heart with no changed life. And their lack of commitment to Christ shows that the, he's not the Lord and their first love. It is what many people today call easy believism, that what have they done? Well, they raised their hand at a meeting and walked an aisle and signed a card and prayed with, with great feeling. And maybe they went regularly to church. Maybe they've gone ever since regularly to church. But they have never known the effectual calling that Peter writes about. They've never known this election to new birth and eternal life that he described in his first letter. And they don't have the fruits that Peter describes in his second letter. They say, I believe. But as the years pass, their Christian friends and family are weighed down because they, they still lack those basic things that Peter is listing. And this is a great problem because people with false assurance are often the hardest to reach with the gospel. And they, and they get mad when you point it out to them. Look, these are the things that accompany salvation. These, these are the fruits that we need to be diligent to add. But, but there's an offense that's taken. They've taken their stand on the sand, and it's very hard to get them to realize that they need to step onto the rock. But as I say, that's just a, a common Amer American flavor of this problem that goes well with Peter's concern. The truth is there are many other problems and errors concerning this on, on every side. Um, for example, well, um, let, let's, let's, let's take it here with, uh, with godly, conscientious, Bible-believing people like us. Okay? Um, we are taught in the Bible in many places, in many ways, that God's grace in our lives will produce the kind of fruit that Peter has just listed here. Uh, in, in short, a life of obedience to God's commands and love for God and man and 
a life of combat with one's sin in the heart and speech and behavior. And truly, an immense amount of information in the Bible is dedicated to describe the nature and character of a follower of Jesus Christ. And by your fruits, you will know them. But of course, this can be extremely troublesome when applied to the matter of assurance. Okay, the teaching is good, and we approve of the teaching. But then we apply it to us in our situation. And we find we struggle, we struggle with a whole new range of questions. J- wait a minute, j- just how many works and which works are in keeping with assurance of salvation? And what about all of our sins? And just how do we measure our obedience to God? How can we measure our love to the brethren to take some comfort in it when indeed there is so much disobedience in us too and so little lack of, so much lack of love in our Christian lives? And then we read about people that have gone far, farther than we've gone in so many ways, and, and yet the Lord says, I never knew you, right? I mean, among those people that Jesus will say on that last day, depart from me, I never knew you, there will be people there hearing that, who cast out demons in Jesus' name. Have you done that? I've never done that. They went a lot farther than me in some things. Well, it's no wonder then that that Christians throughout the ages have struggled to understand or gain or keep assurance of salvation? How are we to read these things if they are, in fact, evidences of salvation? In fact, I, I, I can't believe that really any thoughtful Christian would ever escape a struggle with the assurance of salvation, at least at some point in his Christian pilgrimage. I can't believe that any serious Christian looking at those things and asking these questions wouldn't have to stagger. And as Peter says, then give all diligence. And then on top of all this, we know that it's certainly more of a struggle for some than it is for others because of our own natural temperament and our spiritual background and and the uh, nature of our particular remaining besetting sin. We'll consider that too later. So for, for all of these reasons, um, and, and many more Christians, lack assurance. And, and as I said, given what the Bible says, they, they should struggle with this. They, they, they need to stagger. They need to give some diligence to this, because if it's so important and it's so, so thorny and and we have so much to sort out in ourselves, it is a matter of maturity that we need to press on to. All these are reasons why we lack it. But I think the main reason why real, called, elect Christians lack assurance, the main reason is not one that they often realize. It is they don't know God like they should. In other words, the the real hope and anchor of our assurance, given throughout the Bible, and Peter's letters here, and many other places, 
That's just the eighth chapter of Romans I mentioned earlier. The, the, the main anchor is that, in fact, we have such a God as we have. That this is the God that is for us. The God who spared not his son, but gave him up for us all, who sent him into the world to die for us. And who shall lay any charge to God's elect when it is God who justifies? And who is it that condemns but the very one who's died for us and risen again and makes intercession? And who's going to separate us from his love? And so forth. You see, the real need is not found looking at us, which we'll need to do. But the big thing that is lacking typically when people struggle for some time is to understand what our God is like, what he's done for us, and making him this kind of God, the center of our assurance, this is the kind of God we can be assured with. And so our relationship with the Lord is so often then described, even in those same passages, in, in the warmest terms, as a father to his children, as a husband to his wife, as a bridegroom to his bride, as a beloved brother or a bosom friend or as a head to a body. These are all the most intimate relationships. And what, what are we told? Exceedingly great and precious promises. Right? So that, so that we would think, what kind of God is this? This is a God that we can be assured with. When we don't start there, we have trouble all down the line. Joel Beakey, as I mentioned, did his doctoral dissertation on this subject, and, it, and, and he asked, Do you believe that God loves to assure his children that they are his children and that he is their father? That is the fundamental problem that many people have. Dear doubting believer, understanding who God is in Christ will give you a huge boost to your assurance. God is a loving father, looking for the prodigal son, running to him with legs of mercy, wrapping around him with arms of mercy, weeping over him with tears of mercy, kissing him with lips of mercy, saying, this is my son who was lost and is found. Let us rejoice and be merry. For God loves to receive sinners. You need to understand that. You need to understand Micah 7, 8. He delights in mercy. He is true. He is faithful. He is the merciful, assuring, loving God in Jesus Christ. Ask God to show that to you. Now, take that up next time as where we really need to start. This, this God who has called us we read earlier, by glory and virtue, with exceeding precious promises, with, with righteousness. We get that, we'll be able to find the rest. How do we get it? My final question. How do we get it? Okay, starting with God, as I've said. To summarize now, a great deal of biblical data and theology. Peter describes the foundation of knowing our calling and election is found in this precious faith. 
especially the exceedingly great and precious promises, I say knowing and believing them, which come to us through divine power, here mentioned, by the Holy Spirit, who also bears witness with that same word as described at the end of this chapter. He'll, he'll get there. We'll consider that. And so as a result of these things, uh, we find, as a result, in other words, of this precious faith and especially the great, exceedingly great promises that come to us with divine power by the Spirit, bearing witness with his word, the result is then for us a more and more diligent and fruitful life where these things are ours and abound and that this becomes then uh, the, the, the strong tree that bears the fruit of assurance. Um, and I know, I see, okay, that, I didn't get all that. Okay. Peter will break it down. Uh, I'll try to outline it for you more specifically next time. But let me just say, Christian assurance is usually said to come in these three mutually reinforcing ways. Ways that are all testifying together and with each other. The first and the foremost, these exceedingly great and precious promises of God and the work of Christ and all that. Start there. God has taught us in his word, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved and your house. You confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. This we do believe and we do trust in the Lord Jesus and by this we are to have an assurance of salvation which we may have an, an immature but a real assurance on the very first day. Jesus says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He will not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. And when Jesus says things so confidently, we need to believe confidently. We believe his promise, which is salvation. Now, you, you go on just a single day, and then you, you have this question. All right, here I am now the next day. And I still believe today. But how do I know I'm going to believe tomorrow? Well, this, this is where now the second mutually reinforcing uh, aspect uh, our, our ground of our assurance comes in. Peter thus urges us to add to this faith that as you go on in life, you also need to add together such things to bring you maturity like uh, perseverance, self-control, love. I mean, how do you know you're going to persevere? Persevere! How do I know I'm going to be self-controlled? Learn self-control. And then you'll know. And I say, okay, well, this is now, this is now a struggle because I, I do believe in Christ. I know too well that he is my only hope now, but I also only know too well how weak my faith is. And then I start down this line of doubtful thinking I described to you before. Well, if I were truly believing, wouldn't I sin less and serve God more? Wouldn't I have made more progress by this time? Wouldn't my life be more godly than it is? Wouldn't I pray more earnestly and at greater length? Wouldn't I be declaring my faith to others more boldly? Uh, have I, in fact, believed the most wonderful things in the world? 
And if I've really believed them, why don't they mark my life more visibly and dramatically than they do? Am I fooling myself into thinking I'm a believer? So you, you, see, you see how this downward spiral goes. Uh, P- Peter isn't going there. Peter is describing this upward virtuous circle or spiral, right? Uh, that what, what, you're starting at the wrong place. You're, you're saying, do I have assurance because I don't have any, enough growth and maturity? But P- Peter said, look, what you need to do is commit yourself to growth and maturity, and then you'll find the fruit of assurance. The center of Peter's concern is not that we find ourselves confident in our salvation. The center of his concern is that we grow up and mature. Not that we need perfection, which will never be ours. But the congregation needs growth and spiritual experience and needs God to bring home these things to their hearts by this power. And when they do, what do they find? They are all the more assured. They are all the more confident. They have all the more experience. They have seen struggles in perseverance. And even when they didn't have a good hold of God, God had a good hold of them. They've seen failures in self-control. Those failures have made them humble and watchful and trembling and poor in spirit and meek and mourning. And, and those are all the things that Jesus says will assure us that we're members of the kingdom of God. You see, it comes in a way that we are perhaps not expecting. In fact, as we go... We need God, who began this good work in us, himself more and more to bring it home to our hearts. So, for example, in Psalm 73, where we find a crisis of faith, we find a discouraged and doubting man named Asaph, who's envying the wicked, who's, who, who, who thinks he's about to fall and stumble. He's about to lose his faith. And by the end, he has it completely restored and running at full flood because of that moment that he encountered the Lord in the sanctuary. I mean, he wasn't sure he really believed in God anymore. And we're speaking of a real believer here. And then he's found at the end singing, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none on earth I desire beside you. Uh, that, that is, in part, at least, what is meant by this witness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who testifies in and through that word he is inspired that Peter, again, takes up at the end of this first chapter. But you put these three things together, which I'll list in greater clarity now. The exceedingly great and precious promises of the gospel. The evidence, the fruitful evidence of God at work transforming you. And the witness of the Holy Spirit, which like in Asaph's case, I mean, he still had the same promises. He still had the same life and experience. But then that day in the sanctuary, God brought it home to him again. 
And these are the three things that we need if we're going to have a firm, solid, secure confidence in our calling and election. And putting these things together in an actual life is an interesting and important subject to which we must turn next time. What is assurance? Why do we need it? Why do we lack it? How do we get it? I've just scratched the surface. I can only say now in conclusion, certainly no one, I hope, wishes for large numbers of Christians to be constantly racked by anxiety about their salvation. I say that. There's whole denominations that have that as one of their central tenets. They can't have it. It's horrible. I do not wish for Christians to be racked by anxiety about their salvation. On the other hand, if Christians never or hardly ever give the question a serious thought and never give any diligence to make such calling and election sure, given what the Bible says, given how often the Bible says it, that is not good either. We must give all diligence to this matter. And so I can't do it all for you in a single sermon. But I will introduce it to you and say, do not rest in your faith until you have every reason to say with Paul, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved or longed for his appearing. In times of darkness, what matters most is the solid rock under one's feet, which we must find. The solid rock is not what happened at a camp meeting three years ago. It is not how happy my life is today. It is not even the feelings I find at this moment within my heart, which we know are up and down from the godliest of men. It is not how my day is gone, how quickly and dramatically the Lord has answered my prayers, how pleasant my circumstances, or anything else that is mistake for assurance. We must come at it the right way. Starting with those great and precious promises, brought home by divine power, bearing a fruitful, joyful life. And then we will begin to find something strong and wonderful. He loved me. He gave his son for me. He and he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he with him not also freely give us all things? And then we will have the fruitful life flowering with unshakable assurance. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Everyone has struggled with this or should. Abraham said, Lord, how shall I know? 
Well, the Lord had given him a good promise. The Lord had already done great things in his life. He had come so far. 